Good morning. Such an honor to be uh, at one of my heroes' churches. Dr. Youssef has had such a tremendous impact on my life. And I know guests always come here and say that, but just let me say, as a Middle Eastern honor, you know, when I first became a Christian, I was looking for someone that kind of looked like me, you know, kind of maybe sounded a little bit like me. And, uh, and uh, just uh, one day I was flipping through uh, just uh, channels on TV and uh, immediately stopped and thought, this man looks like my father, physically looks like my father. And uh, from a distance, he, he certainly became a, a spiritual father figure to me. And so for years and years, I have been watching this church on TV, you know, and peeking in and have benefited from it. And when God planted this church, he really had just the nations in mind, not just Atlanta in mind, but the nations in mind. And so I know that that's not just Dr. Youssef and Jonathan and Paul and this incredible staff. That's the congregation. That's the body. Uh, that's apostles that's made this impact. And so let me just get in line with all the other folks that just say thank you. Thank you for the faithfulness that, that you've had as a local church to just really uh, do tremendous work in ministry. And I've been on the receiving end of it, and I'm so thankful for you. It's a good day to be in Georgia, isn't it? I mean, Georgia won. That was expected. Georgia Tech won, y'all. Come on, it's a good day to be in the state of Georgia. What a rarity that I get to say. That was, I'll just take credit for that, all right, Georgia Tech. Uh, and so it's just uh, it's awesome to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you want to get them out, we'll look uh, at a promise together this morning um, out of Isaiah 41, um, 9 and 10. And uh, as, as you're going there, let me just say this about this particular passage. This is um, a particular promise in Scripture. Certain promises in Scripture are particular, meaning uh, they are not necessarily guaranteed to everyone else. We, we read a, a promise, and it's for a particular people for a particular moment in time. And so it doesn't mean that what God is promising in that particular moment to those particular people is something that is going to come into fruition for you and I. However, however, um, my life is a testimony that this particular promise in principle is just as true today as it was thousands of years ago to the people that God made this to. Because in principle, the same God that delivers this promise to a particular group of people is the same God who very personally delivers it to you and to me as the children of God. And as I read it, I hope that it reminds you not just of what God did thousands of years ago, but also what God has done in your life and what we can bank on, not just for our yesterdays and our todays, but for our tomorrows as well. And so God makes this incredible promise, and it's a God-sized promise, and it actually starts with him um, as the originator of the promise. God says, I, I took you from the ends of the earth, and from its farthest corners, I called you. Now, before we go any further, let me just say this. Um, the, the power of a promise is in who's making the promise. You ever thought about that? Like, if I said to you, uh, I've got you, all right? Like, I know the recession might be coming. I know the stock market might be down, and maybe you lost 25% of your retirement fund recently. But listen, I've got you. I'm going to get out my checkbook after this thing is over, and I'm going to write you a check, and I'm going to cover whatever you've lost you're in a lot of trouble because I can write you the check, but it's going to bounce. <laughs> I am not rich. But if God makes a promise, the source of the promise 
has the power of the promise in it. Some of you, in a much more personal sense, know what it's like to have the doctor say to you, hey, I think we got it all and the cancer is never going to come back. And it came back. Maybe the man said to you, I'll never leave you. But he left and he's now moved on and he's no longer a part of your life. And so again, the source of a promise is really built around the power of the promise. And what's beautiful here, before we go any further, is that God's the one making this promise. God bats a thousand when it comes to his promises. When God says something, you can take it to the bank. When God says something, you know that God means it and he delivers it. I've made promises before that I meant, but I wasn't able to deliver on because new information comes to my way, right? And so has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God, that when God makes a promise, God doesn't six months later go, well, I meant that, but things shifted. That was before a pandemic. Has it ever made sense to you and I that nothing ever surprises God, amen? And so because of that, we can bank on a God-sized promise because God doesn't get new information. God doesn't go, I meant well, but that's before the circumstances before us shifted. And so we can hang on to this promise. And it's not just a God-sized promise. It's a particular one, and it's a peculiar one. And it's not just a peculiar one. It's a very personal one because I can put my name by the you in this promise. God says, I took you from the ends of the earth. And from its farthest corners, I called you. And then he says, and I said to you that you are my servant. And then he says this. And he says, and I have chosen you and I've not rejected you. And after that promise, then he pivots into a command. Not a suggestion, but a command. And then he says this. And he says, so, so if you believe verses you know, that before here, if you believe verse 9 to be true, then verse 10 ought to be the result of verse 9 being true in your life. And so he says, and because of verse 9 being true, I want you to not fear. Why? Because I am with you. I want you not to be dismayed. Why? Because I am your God. And he says then, I will strengthen you and I will help you and I will uphold you with my righteous right Hand. Can I just ask you a really simple question? Anybody here this morning, you need strength? I don't know about you, but I need strength. Will you just lift your hand? Anybody here, you need strength today? I don't know about you, I need strength in every aspect of my life. As an Alabama fan, we're having the worst year we've ever had. All right, I need strength. Lord God, give me strength. Kirby Smart's going to win another national championship game, and I've got to deal with my neighbor who's a Georgia fan. Help me, Lord. I need strength. But in a much more serious sense, I need strength as a husband. I need strength as a father. I need strength as a nonprofit leader. I need strength as a pastor. I need strength as an author. I need strength in every. There's not an area in my life where I look at God and go, I've got this one on my own. Anybody else with me? I need strength today. God just said in his word, I will strengthen you. Anybody here need help? Anybody need help? I don't know about you. Some days I need help just getting out of bed. <laughs> There are parts of me hurting some days when I wake up that I didn't even know belonged to me. I was like, I didn't even know this muzzle existed until it started acting up. And there's so much in our life that needs strength, so much in our lives that need help. And God, the deliverer, the capable one, just said, I will help you. I will strengthen you. And then, don't miss this, even though we deserve his wrathful left, he says, I will hold you in my righteous right hand. I look at my life and my entire life, honestly is a testament of this truth. 
God's righteous right hand holding me. God's righteous right hand helping me. God's righteous right hand strengthening me. God's righteous right hand, even when I didn't feel it, being the one that was orchestrating the moments of my life. When I was nine years old, like Dr. Youssef said, I, I remember going to the Iranian Revolution on a November. I was a nine-year-old kid uh, when the Iranian Revolution took place in our country. And as a nine-year-old little boy, I remember those days really vividly. I lived in an army base in Iran, and uh, about the first week of the Iranian Revolution, I'll never forget going to school, and, and we went to about a, a, a military school in our army base with about 1,000 students and, um, from elementary all the way to senior high. And I remember forget getting to school the first week of the revolution uh, one Tuesday morning, and, uh, and they called us out behind the school for an assembly. I made my way outside, and, and you know, as a nine-year-old little boy, I didn't know what, was all, what, what all was taking place, but a soldier was standing in front of our entire school with our principal, and our principal quieted everybody down, and I'll never forget the, the soldier took a piece of paper out and read the name of three students, my name and my sister's being two of the three, and asked us to make our way to the front, and uh, being a really young person, I was kind of in towards, the, towards the front of the school, and so I made the, my way to the front, and as soon as I got there, being the first one to get there, the soldier took a gun out of a holster, and he pointed it at my head, and with his hand shaking, started to quote the Quran and told me that he was sent to take my life. When you're nine years old, and, and, and you, something like that is playing out in front of you, and you just are not even understanding really what's happening, you just look at the person with the gun in their hand, and I remember thinking to myself, he looks scared enough to actually use it. And the school principal got between me and the gun and just started crying and just begged him. She said, I can't do this. Please don't do this. We've we, we got to have you come back another day. The soldier turned around, put the gun in his holster, and walked away. And I'll never forget my sister by this time had made her way to the front, and she gave me a big hug. And everybody around me was crying, but I wasn't because I was just confused. And I went home that day, and I told my dad what had happened. And my father, who was a military man, a really tough military man, started to cry. And he sat me on his lap. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, son, don't worry. When that guy comes back for you, if he does, when he comes back for your sister, we're not going to be there because we're getting out of Iran. And that afternoon, my dad explained to me that there was a revolution that had taken place in our country and that the Ayatollah Khomeini and his religious zealots had taken over our country and they were killing everybody who was anybody and he just happened to be high-ranked in the military and because of who he was, they were trying to make an example out of our family. And I remember in those moments hearing about religion and hearing about these, these, these people, these people that claim to be the people of God coming there. And the last thing I felt at that moment was that God was a God who was holding me in my righteous right hand. I remember as a little kid thinking, I don't know what we've done to make God so mad, but apparently he's angry at my family and he wants to take us out. So we didn't go to school for the next few days. And I remember soldiers eventually coming to our home. I remember soldiers dragging my dad out of our home. And as they were dragging my dad out of our home, my mom was hanging on to the leg of one of the soldiers. And she just kept screaming, just kill him quickly, just kill him quickly. And when you're a little boy, you don't understand why someone is being told by your mother to kill your father quickly. And they took my dad out. And I'll never forget, my mom hung on to my hand and my sister's hand. And, and she just started to pray. It's my first memory ever of prayer. 
And she was praying, and she just kept saying, God, just let him die quickly. Let him die quickly. And at the end of the prayer, I asked my mom, I said, why are you saying this? And she explained. She said, they're taking your dad right now to the same park where they took two of his best friends yesterday. And yesterday, when they took his best friends there, they tied them to a tree. They took a pair of pliers, and they started working their way in from fingernails. And it took about seven hours for your, be- your dad's best friend to be tortured to death. And we just need to pray quickly that your dad will die. When you're nine years old and you're praying that, the last thing you feel is that God is a loving God (laughs) who's helping you and holding you in his righteous right hand. But isn't it interesting how before you know God, God knows you? How even when you think God is the one hurting you, he's the one really holding you? I look back and see how even that day, my dad, (laughs) my dad did not get killed quickly and he came back. And he said, they've given me one more week. And when they come back for us in a week, we're not going to be here. And the next few days, I just remember my mom and dad huddling in a corner and just planning our escape plan. To me, honestly, I thought we were escaping from Iran, but not just escaping from Iran, but escaping from God. And a few days later, my mom acted like her heart was bothering her. And it was all fabricated. It was all fake. And uh, these doctors came to, uh, I mean, this, this ambulance came and got my mom. And what I didn't know that was that my dad had brokered a deal with these doctors. And these doctors took my mom in this back room and they came out and said that she needed bypass surgery that she didn't really need. And we got taken to the airport like we were going to go to Switzerland for this operation, even though we really weren't and we were running for our lives. And I remember, I remember as a little boy, you know, as a nine-year-old little kid just holding my dad's hand in the airport. And his hand just kept shaking and he kept saying, if they find out we're escaping, they're going to kill us right here on the spot. But they didn't find out because I am telling you, when I read that promise as a, out of Isaiah 41, 9 and 10, I can see how God in his righteous right hand from the ends of the earth was holding my family. And we got on the plane and we went up in the air and a couple of hours later we landed in Switzerland and uh, the ambulance got by the plane to have my mom be placed in it. And my mom sat up and said, I don't really need to go to the hospital. This was all fake. Instead, uh, we want to apply for political asylum. And we want to be taken to the American consulate. And that's what they did. We went to the American consulate, and my parents uh, pled our case and told them everything that was going on and how our family was in danger and how we couldn't go back to Iran and how basically we wanted to be refugees. The fancy word was political asylum. But at that time, nobody was allowing Iranians into America because people were watching on TV how we were burning the American flag and we were calling America the great Satan. And 54 Americans were held hostage in the American embassy. And so we were from the wrong place at the wrong time, y'all. And we were trying to make it to America. And there was a hard stop. And for nine months, we were stuck in Europe, trying every way we could to make it here. And the doors just wouldn't open up. We tried legally. We tried illegally. We tried every way we could. And the doors just would not open up until about nine months later. One day, my mom had what she called her American idea. She got us together. And she said, listen, since we want to go to America, uh, I've got an idea. She said, "Um, we ought to pray and asked God to let us in, but we've been praying to the wrong God. She showed us this picture of a white man with a beard and a mullet, kind of a Duck Dynasty-looking fella, and she said, do you guys know who this is? And we said no, and she said, well, uh, this is Jesus Christ, and he's American, and we need to ask him. We need to ask him to let us into his country. And I know some of y'all are laughing, and some of y'all are not laughing. Some of y'all are like, I thought Jesus was American. I don't know if you know this. But Jesus wasn't originally like a white Republican who's always on Hannity at nine. All right, I don't know if you know this, but 
he's more of like from my neck of the woods and Dr. Youssef's neck of the woods than y'all. He's more camel dynasty than duck dynasty. Anyway, so my mom, I know this is bad theology, but my mom shows us this picture of a white bearded man. And she says, this is Jesus. He's American. And I remember she said we should pray to him. And, and I, that's my second memory ever of prayer. My mom held our hands and she said, Jesus, please let us into your country. And, uh, and isn't God so much bigger than bad theology? Because a week later, after we mentioned the name of Jesus, the doors just opened up, and we were coming to America. And I remember as a little nine-year-old kid thinking, I hate religion because it destroyed my country. But hey, Jesus, thanks for letting us into your country. (laughs) And we got on a plane, and we flew and moved to Texas, y'all. Now, can you imagine? We didn't just move to Texas. We moved to Killeen, Texas, where the largest army base in the world is. Can you imagine during the Iranian hostage situation, an Iranian family moving to patriotic Texas to a military town? Can you just say wedgie waiting to happen? (laughs) And that was us. And we moved right in because that's where my dad had taken flight training before. So he thought, that's a place I know. That's a place I like. And as soon as we come in, I got the wrong haircut, the wrong clothes, the wrong language, the wrong everything. And I walk right into the American elementary school and I'm like, hello, I am David. And they're like, You are so going to get beat up today after school. And that was me. And I just remember as a little kid thinking we've escaped halfway across the world to honestly unplug from one kind of terrorism, physical, and plug into a whole other kind, emotional. And the weapon of mass destruction for emotional terrorism is just loneliness. And honestly, my family and I, we just walk right into that season. And for years, I was the outsider kid. I was the kid that every day sat by himself and ate his lunch alone. I was the kid that would watch, you know, the teams get picked, and I was always the last kid to get picked. I was the kid that would watch the birthday invitations go out, and there were 16 people in the classroom, and there were 15 invitations, and I was the one that never got invited. And I remember thinking, we've escaped halfway across the world to come here as refugees, and the last thing that this place feels is like a refuge, a safe haven. And for years and years, that was me until the day, my freshman year, in high school was about to start. I'll never forget, I was sitting in my room and I was crying and my my dad heard me and he came in and he said, what's wrong? And I said, dad, we've been here for years. I know it's starting to work out for you because he'd like figured out how to like become successful in America. And I said, but it's just not working out for me. I said, it's just been really hard and I'm about to go to high school tomorrow. This is the last day of the summer. High school just means even bigger levels of persecution. I said, dad, I just don't, I don't know what it's gonna look like and this just means I'm just gonna get bullied even more and I'm telling him all these things and so my dad just feels sorry for me and so he goes, come with me and he picks me up and puts me in the car and he tries to go fix the problem by taking me to the mall. And that afternoon, my dad gave me this extreme makeover, you know? I get new clothes, new haircut, new shoes, new everything. And I mean, instantly, same insecure kid on the inside, I got made over on the outside. And I walked into the American high school the next day. And instantly, I went from like geek to chic, baby, overnight. I mean, I walked in, I went from Abdul to Julio, baby. I'm just telling you, like, I found out what you know already. I found out, you don't have to be from Iran to know this, right? I found out that people will so many times care more about who you are on the outside and the label that you wear than who you really are in your character. And honestly, that's just the game I played. My high school years became these years where I just took my brain and I put it on the top shelf and just told everyone else they could find my identity for me. You know where it says in the Bible in uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's just hard to swallow 
when you're just always the loner. And I just wanted to conform. I was the kid who never conformed, not so, not so that I could be godly, not so that I could be holy, but because I was just so lonely. And I just remember all of a sudden parachuting into my freshman year, and because I had the right clothes or because I was all of a sudden driving the right car, I found friends, even though they were fabricated friendships. But I was just tired of being alone. And all of a sudden, I learned how to play high school. My high school years became the years where I learned how to end up at the right lunchroom table, how to dump the right girl right before she could dump me to climb the social ladder. I learned how to be cold, to be perceived as cool. And at least when I was a nobody, I was David Nasser, the nobody, but I was just this kid who had sold out because I was just tired of being alone. You know where it says in the Bible, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his soul? I just forfeited my soul. And by the time I graduated from high school, I'd managed to learn how to play the game. I'd managed to learn how to be somewhat popular, but at least when I was a nobody, I was myself and not just a sellout. And I graduated, but I barely, barely, barely graduated. And a couple of months later, about two months after high school, one night, I'm in the car with the only buddy I had left who hadn't gone off to college yet, and we're sitting there, and to be very honest, uh, we're smoking marijuana together, all right, right in front of my house. And, and as we're smoking weed and we're passing this joint back and forth, my buddy looks at me and he goes, Man, you're so down tonight. Why are you so down? And I, and I told him, I said, man, because uh, honestly, like tonight, as we were coming to the end of the summer, I said, I hugged like seven or eight people goodbye, and they were going off to this college and this school and this school. And I said, man, I can't believe, like, you know, we, we just, all our friends are going to these places, and we've got nowhere to be accepted anymore. And all my energy had gone into being social, so I had not really thought about academics, you know, secondary academics. And, and I told him all the reasons I was down, and and my buddy looks over at me, and he goes, well, I've got an idea. He goes, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm surprised he's inviting me to church because he's literally handing me a joint while he's inviting me. He goes, you ought to come to church with me tomorrow. And I'm like, you go to church? And he's like, I'm a Southern Baptist. The first time I heard the words Southern Baptist, I thought it was a kind of weed. <laughs> and he goes, really? And he starts to tell me about how he goes to church. And and I looked at him, and I said, man, I'm not going to church. And he said, why? And I told him, I said, I hate religion. And he goes, what would you hate religion? I said, man, when I was a kid, I saw religion destroy my country. I, I, I am not very religious. I mean, we're like Muslim by, by heritage, but, but like, I'm certainly not even that much into that and, and certainly not going to go to church with you tomorrow. I said, me and God have issues. And I told him all the reasons I didn't want to go to church. And, and literally, my buddy looks at me, who is who's known me for all these years and has never one time brought up God. He looks at me and he goes, oh, you're, you're misunderstanding all of this. I'm not asking you to like believe in God or know God. I'm asking you to be social. He goes, here in the South, when you go to church and you belong to a youth group, you don't have to like love God. You just have to like love girls, you know? And, and he told me the name of five girls that went to his high school, to his youth group and all these guys that we, we hung out with, that we partied with. And he said, they're all going to be at church the next day. And, and I instantly felt motivated to visit. <laughs> and isn't it interesting how, again, looking at that verse that we read a little while ago, that God's righteous right hand is so much bigger, so much more sovereign than even what you see in the circumstances. Because the first time I went to church, I didn't go to church because I felt like there was a void in my life and I needed to fill with only God because only he could fill it. I went completely for the wrong reasons. But God was bigger than my reasons. And I'll never forget just going to church on a Sunday morning. I didn't know what to expect. I walk in this church. They had a, they had a youth rally happening that Sunday morning. 
and I walked in the gym where they were having the youth rally, and as soon as I walked in, I saw all these people that I used to party with, so I walk up to them, and I didn't know how to play church, so every other word out of my mouth was a cuss word, because that's how we were outside the church, and, and they're all embarrassed to be standing next to the blatant lost kid who doesn't know how to play church culture, and, and within five minutes, they're as embarrassed as can be, and they're far from me. So I'm standing by myself, and the youth pastor gets up and goes, we're running late, everybody, have a seat. So I go by myself, and I sit in the front row, and as soon as I sat down, I looked up, and I saw Larry No walking towards me. Now, let me tell you about Larry No. Larry No didn't go to my high school. He went to our rival high school, but everybody in town knew Larry No because he was a witnessing machine. <laughs> and about a year before that Sunday morning when I was sitting at his church and he was walking right towards me, Larry No and I had had an incident, all right, when I was at a party, and I was with my girlfriend at this party, and Larry No had just cold, just walked up to me and my girlfriend at the party and started to share the gospel with us. He told me, he said, I'll never forget, like that night we met, he told me, hey, I was driving by and I saw all these cars, realized there's a party going on, and I just felt like God told me to come and talk to somebody at this party, and I just got out of my car, and you're just happy, you're the first person I've run into in this, in the, in this, in this yard, and, and he said, and I just want to tell you, and he pointed to the beer bottle in my hand, he goes, that's just going to leave you thirstier, he, hold, he pointed to the girl that I was, I was hanging on to, he was like, that relationship's probably not going to make you satisfied, he goes, only God can satisfy you, only God is living water. Only God is the bread of life. And he just starts preaching, and my girlfriend lets go of my hand, and I realized that he was getting to her, and I didn't want him getting to her. So I started being rude, and I started being, like, cruel, and everything he was saying, I was making fun of him. And, and finally, he just shook his head, and he was discouraged, and he walked away. I thought I won that round. And a year later, I'm sitting at his church, and he's walking right towards me, and I thought, oh, no, now he's going to get me back. Like, this is his home turf. And he stands right over to me, he goes, I remember you, and that's exactly what I was afraid of. <laughs> he goes, you're David, right? I said, yeah, you're Larry. He goes, man, I'm so glad you're here. He goes, can I sit down beside you? And he sits down beside me, and the youth pastor says, get your Bible out. And I didn't have a Bible, because I hadn't been to the hotels yet, to steal one from the Gideons or whatever, so I <laughs> kind of felt left out. And, and then all of a sudden, I felt something on my lap, and Larry had quietly opened up his Bible and placed it on my lap, so I wouldn't feel left out. And the whole time, the Sunday school lesson was going on. All I kept thinking about was, man, I was so rude to this guy. Why is he nice to me? I was so mean to him. Why is he ministering to me? And I didn't understand grace, getting the opposite of what you deserve. He was being gracious, graceful. When the Sunday school lesson was over, Larry stood up and he looked at me and he goes, I got to confess something. He goes, I didn't listen to one thing that guy was teaching today. I said, me neither. He goes, I mean, all I kept thinking about is just you being here. And I said, all I kept thinking about is why are you being nice to me? And he said, David, are you kidding me? He goes, this is incredible you're here. He goes, I've been praying for you since the day we met. Remember the night we met? I said, oh, I remember. He goes, you've been on my prayer list. He goes, I've been praying for you. He goes, man, you've got to come back tonight. We're having this bigger youth rally tonight. And I had nothing to do, but I was just so full of pride. And so I looked at him, and I said, I've got stuff to do. You know what he said to me? He looked at me, and he goes, well, if you don't want to come back tonight, he goes, we'll just come see you. And what I didn't know was they had this thing called visitation. <laughs> Lost people call it harassment. <laughs> and literally, y'all, 17 teenagers from that church showed up at my house that next Monday night. Can we come in for a few minutes? And they lied, because three hours later, they were still in my house. <laughs> And they came in, and they had this beaded bracelet that all had these beads that all stood for something. And they began to share through the Roman road 
how I was a sinner in need of a savior and how Jesus had come down and lived this perfect life and then died a sinner's death and he had died in my behalf on the cross. And, and when they got done with their pitch and they said, David, Jesus wants to, to, to give you redemption and he wants to give you peace and he wants to give you salvation and what he did on the cross pays the penalty for your sin and, and, and you can receive that forgiveness. Would you like to give your life to him? I'll never forget after they got done with their pitch, I just looked at him and I said, guys, I'm sure he loves you. You seem like really good religious people you don't know how bad I've been. And, and they looked at me and they said, David, it's not about how good you are or how bad you are. It's all about who Jesus is. And, and after about a few minutes of like realizing it wasn't going to work, <laughs> I'll never forget just showing them the door and say, hey, I, I don't want to be rude. You've been here like three hours. Like you guys have to leave. And on their way out, one of them did say, we'll see you next week. And they weren't kidding. <laughs> and I'll never forget, we were the Iranian family, y'all, but we got terrorized by a youth group. Because for the next eight Monday nights in a row, we're like, hi, the Christians are coming. The Christians are coming. And every Monday night at 6 o'clock, they would show up at my house, and they would come in, and they would just share the gospel. One week, it would be John 3.16. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that if you believe in him, you would not perish but have eternal life. And they would share with me how God so loved David Nasser that he gave his son. The next week, it would be the same redemptive truth, but a different verse. You know, it'd be like, he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. The next week, it'd be another verse. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Different Bible verses, same redemptive truth, that God existed, I existed, but my sin separated me from God, but Jesus came to make a way. And week after week after week, they would come to my house, and they would share the gospel with me, share the gospel with me, share the gospel with me. And every Monday night, they would show up. But every Sunday, somebody would come and just wait until I got in the car, and they would drag me to church. And I say drag me, but I just wanted to go. And honestly, I didn't want to go because I thought the sermons were great. I didn't want to go because I really connected with the music. The music didn't make a lot of sense to me. They were singing about things that were very foreign to me. But I wanted to go because I'd never seen kindness like that. It's just a magnet. Love is a magnet. One night I was at their church eight weeks in. And the preacher was preaching and he got done with the sermon. And as soon as he got done, he gave this invitation. He said, listen, if you've never truly given your life over to Christ and you want to come to the front and you want to pray with someone to give their life, to give yourself over to him, I want you to come. And I just remember just feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But when you're lost, you don't think of it that way. You just think like something's weird. And during the invitation, while all these people were hitting the aisle and coming forward, I remember thinking, I got to get away. And I hit the aisle, and I just went as fast as I could out of the room. And I remember as I was walking out, I thought, these Christians are starting to get to me. I'm going to tell them, like, do not come to my house tomorrow night. There's no more Monday night visitations. There was no more. I'm, I'm, I'm done. And I drove home being convinced, like, this, this is starting to get to me. I got to stop it. I got to sever it. And I walked into my house that Sunday night. And the presence of God was thicker in my house than it was in that building. It's like the psalmist says, you know, in um, Psalm 139, where he says, where can I go from your presence, O Lord? If I go to the mountains, you are there. If I go to the valleys, you are there. When you're lost, the omnipresence of God can be a real nuisance. <laughs> and I walked into my bedroom and I walked into my house. My parents were out of town that night. And as soon as I walked into my bedroom, I just remember just the thickness of just conviction. And there was a stack of Bibles because these Christians kept bringing me Bibles, <laughs> every version, NIV, ESV, Precious Moments. I had every version, you know, and, and uh, some of them had other people's names. They'd gone to the lost and found and brought them for me. And uh, 
I remember I took the top Bible, and I thought, they keep going to this book and keep saying, let's see what God has to say in eight weeks of relationship with him. And so I thought, if this is how God speaks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show God he's not allowed to speak to me anymore. And I walked to my backyard, and I had a barbecue grill there, and I, was, um, I opened it up, and I put the Bible there, and I poured charcoal fluid all over it, and I thought, I'm going to burn this thing and show God symbolically we're done. But I couldn't find a match anywhere. <laughs> and then I just started reading it. It's weird. I know it's weird. Like the other day, I was sitting with somebody. Um, Sony Provident just bought the rights to this story, you know, to tell the story. And, and the guy was like, how did you go from like you were about to burn it to you just started reading it? I was like, I don't know. I'm just telling you what happened. What happened was I was about to burn it. I couldn't find a match. Then I started reading it. And he was like, how would you explain it? I was like, I don't know, spiritual CPR. I mean, I just, I'm just telling you, like, I had no interest. And then all of a sudden, I started reading it. I'm just telling you, like, Maybe he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. All I can tell you is, like, I had no interest in it, but then all of a sudden I couldn't find any matches, and I just started reading it. And as I started reading it, I just remember, forget, I'm standing there, and I'm reading this, like, Bible dripping with charcoal fluid, and it was just so boring. Because <laughs> I didn't love the author of the book, so I didn't, I didn't love the book. But I kept flipping through it, and I got to this story that maybe some of you know, and somebody flannel grafted it for you when you were a kid, but I'd never read before, about a guy on a stormy night who's in a boat named Peter who hears Jesus walking on water to him, calling out of the boat, and he steps out of the boat. Anybody know that story? I'd never read that before. And in real time, as I'm reading it, all of a sudden, I just felt like God was saying to me, you have stepped out of the boat for so many other people, but Jesus is calling you to step out. Trust him. And that same Bible that bored me 10 minutes later just, just hit me. It's so true, you know, where it says in Hebrews, the word of God is living and it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, cuts through bone and marrow and judges the attitudes of life. And that same Bible just started convicting me. And so I sat there in my backyard and I just started reading that story. And about 15 minutes later, after I read that story like three, four times, I just remember thinking, I've stepped out for everyone but the only one who can actually save me. I just closed my eyes and I said, Jesus, I know you're real. I want you to be real in me. I know you're God. I want you to be my God. Save me. And I was 18 and two months old that night, the night that God saved me. My parents came home a couple hours later. I told my mom and dad what had happened. And my parents were never devout Muslims until that night. <laughs> and they disowned me and kicked me out of the house. And I'll never forget, five months after I was a Christian, I got a phone call one night from my sister weeping on the phone. And through Campus Crusade at her college, she'd become a Christian. And then five months after that, my mom, who kicked me out of the house, 10 months after I was a Christian, one night called me screaming on the phone, tonight I become Christian. I'm like, why are you yelling? She goes, I want your father to hear because he's not kicking me nowhere. That's how she got saved. My mom became a Christian. And then five months after that, my brother Benjamin became a believer. And two years past that, my dad had still not become a believer. And my mom, buddy, she was putting Bible verses in his food and his Rogaine, everything. <laughs> and almost three years passed, and then one day, in God's perfect timing, God saved my dad. And one by one, I've seen God's righteous right hand help, hold, strengthen, cover my family. And so that verse is personal to me. 
And I don't know about you, but I see a God who's sovereign over all of it. And I see the hour I first believed, and now he was faithful before that hour, and he's faithful during that hour, and he's faithful in my tomorrow. Amen? People always hear my story, and they always go, boy, it must have been tough for an Iranian family to come to Christ. And I always go, not half as tough as it is for good American people that go to good American churches who maybe have churchianity down but have never truly come to Christ. My wife was that way, y'all. My wife grew up in the church. My wife was on the pastor's search committee when she was like 16. Everybody else was like 70. She was 16, and they put her on the pastor's search committee. My wife never missed a tithe check her entire life. My wife was Bible drill champion for the state of Alabama five years in a row. I've seen the ribbons. That's back when, like, you had to earn ribbons. Everybody just didn't get ribbons, all right? She earned a ribbon. My wife was good. She was moral. My wife never said a cuss word. The worst thing my wife did growing up was read under a dim light or take that tag off the pillow you're not supposed to, all right? My wife was good. But my wife was 18 years old when one night, 18 years old when one night as a counselor at a crusade, she walked an aisle, took her counselor badge off and said, I'm doing all the right things, but I've never truly become his. And it's interesting. I was 18 when God saved me out of rebellion. She was 18 when God saved her out of religion. And people always hear my story and go, boy, it must have been tough when God saved your family. And I always go, they ought to give her the movie deal. Because it's a whole lot tougher for someone like that. But isn't it interesting that whatever your story is, that or that or somewhere in between, that we all serve a God who's the hero of our story? A God who says, I took you from the ends of the earth and from its farthest corners, I called you and I said, I've chosen you and I've not rejected you. So do not fear. Why? What does he say? Do not fear. For I am with you. I will hold you, I will strengthen you, and you're in my righteous right hand. Amen? If anything, be reminded that God's righteous right hand is holding you right now in the circumstances of your life. Can I, can I pray with us, just wherever you are? Father, we thank you for your word, your promises, God, that are true in our lives. God, you're so good. In our life, God, as we look back and we see the inconsistencies of us, we see the consistency of you. God, thank you for your faithfulness to us, even in the hours when we've not been faithful to you. God, as I share my story again, I'm just reminded of all the hours where I failed you, all the moments where, God, I just, um, I continue to sabotage my own hope and my own peace. But God, you were just consistent. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your patience and your goodness towards all of us. And, and, I, and I thank you, Lord, as, as we, we look in a morning like this at the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, that we're reminded, God, of, of the power of the gospel in the, in the life of an individual. I'm probably the only Iranian here this morning, but I'm not the only believer here this morning who sees that promise, God, as a reminder of who you've been. Help us, Lord, to hang on to that in the way that, God, you, you're going to be through our life in time to come. Let us testify, God, to your goodness and your mercy. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.